From Dartmouth Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on providing up-to-date information on COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm your host, Jesse Swain, System Director of Infection Prevention at Dartmouth Health, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Michael Calderwood, Chief Quality Officer and Infectious Disease Physician at Dartmouth Health, about his conclusions about studies presented at the recent SHEA conference. For those of you that are not familiar, SHEA is the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Calderwood. Happy to be here. So just when you think this pandemic is over, it rears its ugly head once again. Dr. Fauci recently co-authored a paper in which the argument was made that COVID-19 herd immunity is an unattainable goal, which after two years of this pandemic is not encouraging. Can you review some of the rationales behind this argument for our listeners? Be happy to. Over the past two years, we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2 as the virus and the illness that causes COVID-19. Similar to other respiratory viruses, such as influenza, SARS-CoV-2 has gone through a continual antigenic drifting or phenotypic evolution. Folks will recognize this because it's resulted in new variants that are often reported in the news. Now, some of these have led to new waves of increased transmission in the pandemic. We've also learned about the important role of asymptomatic transmission in community spread. This is why masks have been such an important part of our mitigation efforts. Unfortunately, despite their proven benefit during periods of increased community transmission, masks became a political flashpoint. Rather than being recognized as an important part of helping our communities thrive, our businesses stay open, and our neighbors, family, and ourselves healthy. Now, the same can be said for COVID-19 vaccines. The vaccines have protected us against really the cases, the hospitalizations, and the deaths from this disease. But at the same time, we know that some of this protection is reduced over time and requires boosting. So much like we do with other vaccines, such as the annual flu vaccine, it's important for folks to be up to date on all vaccine recommendations. Taking all of that into consideration, is vaccination still the best means to achieving some level of ongoing herd immunity? So I can't stress this enough. When we've looked at the data from December of 2020 through March of 2022, it has really been estimated that COVID-19 vaccines averted over 2.2 million deaths in the United States alone, 17 million hospitalizations, and 66 million infections. In addition, it's estimated to have saved $900 billion in healthcare costs in our country. Now, unfortunately, resistance against public health measures such as masking, social distancing, and vaccines has resulted in more community transmission, hospitalizations, and deaths. And if you look at the United States right now, we're approaching a million deaths that have been reported from COVID-19. And it was the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer in both 2020 and 2021. And in reviewing the data from 2021, the excess deaths were disproportionately concentrated in states where resistance to COVID-19 vaccination was prevalent. 
Now, recent models have shown the impact of lower rates of community vaccination. And this is important because often when you go out in the community, you don't know if those around you are vaccinated or not. If an individual who is up to date on vaccination is mixing with others who are unvaccinated, their risk of infection is increased by around 50%. Now, it's still far less than those who are unvaccinated. The risk for those who are unvaccinated out in the community is four times higher. And for those who are unvaccinated, predominantly congregating with others who are unvaccinated, that risk of infection is eight times higher. We also have ongoing data through the latest Omicron surge that those who were unvaccinated had as high as a nine times higher rate of hospitalization than those that were up to date on COVID-19 vaccination. And that's true even among those age 18 to 49, where this difference was five times higher. So I know some folks when they're in these younger age brackets think they're really not at risk and that's not true. And so we need to continue to emphasize the importance of these vaccinations in preventing community spread and in preventing severe illness amongst those who develop a case of COVID-19. Wow, that's some fantastic data and definitely convincing. So we know that now the CDC has expanded eligibility of a second vaccine booster to some specific populations, including those 50 years of age and older, and those who are moderately to severely immunocompromised 12 years of age and older, and those people that only got the two doses of J&J. &J. Can you tell us your thoughts on second boosters for the general public? Will we be seeing that in the future? This is a really important question and, and something that has evolved over the, the past year. So during the Delta wave of the pandemic, we learned about the significant reduction in hospitalizations with a booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And if you look at data through February of 2022, we saw significant benefits from that booster dose in reducing hospitalizations in all age groups, 12 and older. And some are further advocating for boosters even in children age five to 11. Now, the benefits of boosters increase with age, and there's now been a focus on a second booster, particularly for those 50 and older. And if you look at the data, it's been reported that one in 125 Americans age 50 and older have died from COVID-19. Yet only 58% of Americans age 50 and older have had a single booster with far fewer having come forward to get a second booster. If you look at data that are published in two papers this month, one in the New England Journal of Medicine and a second in Nature Medicine, Receiving a fourth shot or a second booster during the Omicron surge reduced mortality for those age 60 and older by 76 to 78%, a very impressive reduction. And while there may be even more effective combination COVID-19 vaccines in the fall of 2022, some that are gonna be targeted at newer variants, I do recommend that those who are eligible for a second booster should consider this now in order to boost protection, knowing that this doesn't preclude additional vaccination six months from now if a different or better vaccine becomes available. 
Fantastic. That's really interesting. I mean, I know personally that I would definitely consider getting a booster in the fall if that's something that is recommended. But beyond vaccination, we know that there have been many other accepted preventative interventions that have been put in place over the course of the pandemic to prevent the transmission of COVID-19. We talked about masking, but also hand hygiene, physical distancing, the testing, quarantining, closures and lockdowns. Unfortunately, not everyone has chosen to participate in these mitigation strategies. Why do you think that is? So we've had a number of surveys that have been done really trying to understand what has been going on in the community and the conversations that have been taking place. The Kaiser Family Foundation has been conducting monthly surveys and publishing those to really understand over time what has been happening. What's interesting is that the number of people who've responded that they'll wait and see about vaccination has continuously declined over time. Those individuals really being convinced by the safety data and the data on the reduction in cases and severe illness. But those who reply that they will definitely not receive a vaccine has not significantly declined. Now, much of this is driven by false dichotomies. And there was a quote from a paper back in July of 2021 that I thought was pretty telling. It said, the global community is not used to seeing rapidly emerging science and changing policy, and has therefore been desperate for immediate, unambiguous answers. Naturally, intolerance of uncertainty has driven some people to fill this void with deceptive narratives. And I think it's important for all of us, and it's true on both sides of the argument, to recognize that things are not black and white. There are multiple shades of gray. And this is played out in conversations about health versus the economy, conversations about indefinite lockdown versus unlimited reopening, and in conversations about masks for all versus no masking. And this balance has changed over time and will continue to do so as we see community transmission rise and fall. Now, earlier this month in April of 2022, Around 60% of Americans reported that they had returned to doing some pre-pandemic activities, allowing for things like more gatherings and travel. And it's important to understand that the past two years have had a significant impact. You have really close to 50% of Americans responding that the pandemic has had a negative impact on their mental health. This issue between isolation and not being able to see people community interaction. We have one in four Americans that have noted an impact on their employment status and 40% saying that they've had a negative financial impact from the pandemic. So as we think about policies, we need to understand these impacts and again, find the right balance between each of these mitigations as we go forward. Yeah, I think you definitely hit the mark there. It's definitely clear that the pandemic environment has taken its toll on both individuals and families, with a significant number of children actually suffering the loss of a caregiver. So let's talk about children and masking in particular. I have not detected any harm to my own children as a result of the required masking, except for maybe some complaining periodically. But there are studies to the contrary can you tell us what some of these studies are indicating? I would first start by saying that if we look through February of 2022, 
The number that really hits home for me is that 167,000 children in the United States have lost a primary caregiver due to COVID-19. This is going to have lasting impacts. I think we also have to understand we're probably not going to understand the impacts for many years, and this is going to play out over time. What we know is that COVID-19 mitigation strategies have decreased viral transmission. They've allowed schools to continue delivering on the promise of education to our children. But at the same time, there have been delays in medical diagnoses and immunizations as some children avoided healthcare settings. There's been an increase in anxiety and depression, and we're seeing that play out in terms of individuals coming in with mental health illness requiring hospitalization and escalation of care. We also are aware that families without internet access and or electronic devices in the home became lost in both our healthcare systems that increasingly converted to telehealth and our education systems in many areas of the country that moved to online. In addition, as children began returning to school, we've learned that masks actually can impact the ability of some children to interpret emotion. Sadness and anger can still be discerned mostly through the eyes, but things such as fear can be more difficult. And finally, among U.S. high school students who report use of an illicit drug, about a third have reported more use during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we need to understand the impact that this has truly had on our children and our communities. That's really interesting, especially not knowing in advance what we know now. Do you think that as we learn more and move forward, we will be in a better position to reduce some of the societal and individual impacts? I think we need to think of the interventions to battle this pandemic as a continuum. It's not black and white. We know there are factors that promote prevention. There are factors that undermine prevention. So some of these are personal preventive interventions. Some of them are shared community interventions. And what is needed at any given time is going to depend on the level of transmission in the community and to a degree on what a school and a community accepts as their risk tolerance. So we've learned to live with some risks, but we also understand that severe risks are preventable. And so we need to be able to give people choices that allow them not to make a choice that is either this or that, but to pick and say, we're going to do this set of interventions and we're going to accept some risk by not doing other interventions. It sounds like what the population really needs to think about is compromise and balance when it comes to some of these mitigation practices, protect those at risk, and then, you know, balance those other mitigation strategies based on the risk. Absolutely so right. let's shift gears and actually go inside of healthcare. We know COVID-19 has impacted every aspect of healthcare from the way that the care is received to the quality of the care that's received. What can you tell us about how the quality of the care has impacted COVID-19 cases and deaths within healthcare facilities? One of the hardest hit communities has been those living in nursing homes. We learned that very early on in the pandemic. 
And what we learned is that nursing homes with the highest Medicare star rating for overall quality actually had the lowest rate of COVID-19 cases and deaths. This really helps to highlight the importance of focusing on quality metrics as indicators of harm prevention. And that's true across the, the healthcare continuum. Now, we've also learned about the impact of COVID-19 vaccination of healthcare personnel in reducing transmission within our healthcare facilities. Vaccination resulted in a 72% reduced odds of transmission within our healthcare facilities. And what we really need to focus on now is the impact of presenteeism, recognizing that individuals who are vaccinated can still become infected. They are much less likely to have severe illness. They're much less likely to be hospitalized or to die. But we need to think about this idea of working well sick and the risk that that poses to others. So it's important that everyone, whether at work, in the community, or at home, think about what they can do to prevent the spread of illness to others. As with all respiratory illnesses, hand washing, wearing a mask, and socially distancing can help reduce that spread. And this is going to be true both in healthcare settings and in all work environments. And so it's important for folks to think about if they're sick, stay home and recover. It will help the community. It will help your loved ones. I couldn't agree more. I've actually appreciated not even experiencing those annual illnesses that the children bring home from school. I think that masking has played a huge role in that and it's actually been really nice. So it's great. We know that healthcare facilities have suffered shortages of staff within all departments across the facility and for numerous reasons. And most facilities continue to struggle with staffing. Healthcare workers are indeed superheroes, but we can and we do get COVID-19. So the issue is that staff continue to come to work for a variety of reasons. What do you think some of these reasons are in addition to presenteeism? And how can we combat these to keep both patients and staff safe? So at the Shea Spring Conference, there was a wonderful report from the University of North Carolina that actually found that about 60% of healthcare personnel reported working with symptoms of an infectious illness at least once since March of, of 2020. And about 40% of that was due to their COVID-19 risk perception. And so this was this idea that they uh, felt protected by vaccination or felt that their symptoms were mild and maybe attributable to something else. And this is important as we come up upon allergy season and there are many reasons to have a runny nose, itchy eyes, et cetera. Now, there were other things related to difficulty finding coverage, colleague workload, workplace culture, sick leave. And these are all issues that we need to address. I think right now what I'm focused on is that the availability of rapid at-home testing and the mitigation with the ability to wear a mask can actually help to prevent unintended workplace transmission. Now, as I said before, still, if you're feeling sick, you should stay home and recover. That's both for your own well-being and the well-being of others. But again, to focus on the availability of testing, and many people I know kind of wake up and say, I'm not quite sure what this is. They do a rapid test. They say, you know, 
I don't have a fever. These are fairly mild symptoms. I'm going to wear a mask the entire time I'm at work to protect others. And if I'm still feeling sick tomorrow, I will repeat a test just to be sure. And that's really the important conversation we need to be having. Absolutely. I think especially with COVID-19 and not necessarily having a standard set of symptoms that you can rely on and say for sure that it's definitely related to that illness. It makes it very challenging for folks to know whether it is their seasonal allergies or something else going on. Another aspect of quality of care that we can talk about and is sort of a hot topic is appropriate antibiotic prescribing. Can you tell us how the pandemic has affected physician prescribing and maybe some reasons why this is happening? So well before the pandemic, there was a growing threat of antimicrobial resistance. And this is bacteria that are resistant to our commonly available antibiotics and a future state where there was a fear that we would have infections we could no longer treat because we didn't have infective antibiotics. So we've had stewardship efforts. We've looked at appropriate use of antibiotics. Now, many have looked at the, the pandemic and it has required a ton of effort within healthcare systems to address all of the impacts, but it's taken attention away from other areas. And one of those has been around stewardship. One thing we've seen that is within hospitals, it's been reported that about three quarters of patients admitted with COVID-19 received an antibiotic. And that's a medication targeted at bacteria. And I will remind you that SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 is a virus and not treated with antibacterials. And it's important also to recognize that it sometimes was done kind of coming from the right place. People were worried about a bacterial super infection, but really we've recognized that that's quite rare. It's only seen in about eight to 9% of patients, particularly those critically ill in an ICU setting. And so we were using a lot more antibiotic than was probably needed. And the real risk to that is that it is driving an increase in antibiotic resistance. Now, on the flip side, in the outpatient setting, the shift to telehealth actually resulted in a lower percentage of primary care visits with an antibiotic being prescribed. And so there may be some balancing between prescribing the outpatient and prescribing the inpatient settings, but this really deserves further study. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's something I think that infection preventionists in particular are trying to become more involved with is the antibiotic stewardship aspects of care and quality. So we want to thank you for your time today and for all of this valuable information. Are there some key points that you'd like our listeners to take away with them today? Well, I'd first like to say thank you for a great conversation. I really enjoyed being with you here today. I think my takeaways are fairly simple. It's first that the COVID-19 pandemic, despite what we all hope to be the case, is, is not over. And it's important for us to think about what we can do. You need to test if you have symptoms. You need to make sure you're up to date on vaccinations. And you need to understand that mitigation strategies will evolve over time based on community transmission and hospitalizations. And there will be periods where some of these go away. And in the long term, we hope that most of them go away. But there will be periods where things pick up 
and you'll see people beginning to wear masks again. And they're doing that really to protect all of those around them in addition to themselves. And we have to understand that it takes a village and it's going to take all of us to get through this. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I hope that you're right. I hope that people do continue to mask up when they're not feeling well. I think it's one of the best things we can do. So thank you again. And until next time, I'm Jesse Swain, and you've been listening to Dartmouth Health's The Cure.